You were meant to live an extraordinary life. You were created by God to change the world. You have been empowered by God to change the world. Now, many, if not most, people who associate, who embrace the idea of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world, never realize that in their practical life. And one of the main reasons that they don't realize it is because that every day their life is on a collision course with a counterculture. Every day they are running into the wall of an entirely different worldview. Every day, every one of us collide with the culture around us. I like in the video it said, Jesus came to get messy. You know, Jesus didn't come to have a comfortable experience. He even said, don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've come to set husband against wife and father against, uh, against son and son against mother. He said, I come to make it messy because I've come to open eyes to what's really going on in the world. That's what we're going to do beginning today. We're going to get messy. We're starting a brand new series, Collide. And what we're going to be talking about is how we collide with culture every day in every area of our lives. And we hope that what's going to happen as we progress through this is that we're going to have our eyes opened. And that we're going to begin to see our lives, our choices, our decisions in a whole new light. Now, it's going to get messy. I can promise you that. As we overturn stones and open doors into to different compartments of our lives and in our minds, it's going to get messy. But I believe because you're here today, that it is your desire to follow God. It is your desire to make Christ reign in your lives. And what we don't realize is that may not be happening. Not because we don't want it to happen, but because we are colliding every day with a different worldview, with a counterculture to that that the Bible declares that we should embrace. Now today, we're just going to introduce the idea. Today we're just going to get going. And can we start from a faith-based perspective? For as people of God, as people of Jesus Christ, we would have to admit that something has gone terribly wrong in America. Amen. I mean, how have we gone from what Patrick Henry said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but on, by Christians, not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. How have we gone from that to the contemporary view that says if fundamentalist forces can gain control of our political and judicial institutions, our country will ere long to be converted into a, a relentless fundamentalistic theocracy, as if it's a bad thing. How have we gone from what John Quincy Adams said, our founding fathers connected in one indissoluble band of principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity to the church is the rock of ages blocking the road to enlightenment 
We must make our schools safe from its theocracy. How have we gone from what Andrew Jackson said when he said, Go to the scriptures. The joyful promises it contains will be a balsam to all your troubles. That book is the rock on which our republic rests. How do we go from that to religious zealots barricade the road of progress, put out the eyes of intelligence, mutilate learning, and nail reason to the cross? Something has gone terribly wrong in America. We have drifted far, far, far away from our founding principles. We have become yet another nation in the history of nations who have fallen victim to Paul's warning to his young preacher apprentice, Timothy, in his second letter, 2 Timothy 4.3, when Paul writes, For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a large multitude of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's where we're living today. That marks the culture that is predominant in our workplaces, in our schools, even in many of our extended families. How did America slide so far in our culture? How did we get away from what our founding fathers say to what people are saying about the church and about Christianity and about the Bible today? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you love history? Raise your hand. How many of you hate history? Raise your hand. All right, those of you who love history, you're going to love this. Those of you who hate history, suck it up. Because you can't arrive at a destination if you don't know where you're starting from. And what I want to do is I want to set the basis and I want to set the foundation for the series this morning so that we understand what we're up against and why we're up against it. Because, again, we're, we're colliding every day with counterculture. And it is having more of an impact on us than we might think. So how did we get to where we are? Well, American culture can be divided into three periods. The first period is called the pre-modern period. It was the period of the 17th and 18th centuries, or the 1600s and the 1700s. Now, this period, early in America's existence, was characterized by a life that was dominated by a belief in God and in his activity in human and cosmic and eternal affairs. In other words, people believed that God was God, that the Bible was the Bible, and that God was active in every area of life, this life, previous life, and the life to come. And that's how people based their life. Not everybody was a believer, but the culture embraced that foundational premise. Started with our Puritan foundation. 1620, pilgrims go to Pilgrim Rock. They come to escape religious persecution in their homeland, and they come to set up a land, Christian land, as our forefathers said, so that Christians could believe and practice their faith according to the dictates of God's word. More and more people came to the colonies, and the colonies grew. But throughout that period, the cultural focal point, the cultural center was God's word and the belief in God and the desire to follow his dictates and his commands. 
Now, there was a little ripple that came about in the 1830s because a mass immigration began to form into the United States of Catholic and Jewish immigrants. The, the potato famine, the Irish potato famine in, in Ireland and Germany brought, brought over Catholics and brought over other strains of Protestantism. And Jewish people began to immigrate to the land of opportunity here in the new colonies. And so there was a bit of a cultural tension that that created. But it was a doctrinal cultural tension. It was the difference between the, the beliefs and the doctrines and theology of Protestantism and Catholicism and Judaism. But on the whole, the culture remained steadfastly focused on the principles of God because both the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, along with the New Testament, the complete revelation of God, was still embraced by those bodies and provided the focal point to keep that degree of cultural stability based on the principles of God. However, while this was happening, especially towards the latter part then of the 18th century, a small schism began to occur. As mankind became more aggressive in inventing, and as science began to grow, the door was cracked for our culture to move away from biblical foundations. One of the big elements came in the 1740 when it started the American Industrial Revolution. Up until that time, America was an agrarian culture. We were all farmers. But when the Industrial Revolution hit, people began to leave the rural communities, move into the cities, and work in factories. That had several uh, degrees of impact on culture. Number one, materialism began to rise in America because now everything wasn't homemade. You didn't make it at home, and if you didn't make it, you didn't have it. Now they're being mass-produced, and now you can buy things, and people want it more and more things. So our attention was turned towards materialism. Also, more immigration came into the United States. People were coming for the American dream. They were coming to get employment. However, when they arrived, here's what they discovered. They discovered that, yes, there were plenty of jobs in the industries and the factories of the big cities of the United States, but what they didn't realize is those jobs paid very little. And they involved very, very long hours, 14, 16-hour days. And so when immigrants came in and moved into the United States, what they really discovered was that their entire family had to go to work in order to eat and to have a place to stay. History records that this was men, women, and boys and girls, and children as young as three years old were working in those factories. And those factories operated seven days a week, which drew people away from the churches, out of the churches, further away from the influence of God's word. All of that led into the period that was the follow that we call the modern period. This is the mid-19th century to the 20th century, the 1800s to the 1900s. In 1859, a historical event occurred that catapulted modernism into the forefront of American culture. It changed American culture from that day through the present day. What was that event? 
Charles Darwin introduced his book on the origin of the species. Charles Darwin introduced the idea of evolution. That mankind and everything around us was not the result of the biblical account of creation, God creating, but that everything happened, everything evolved over time. Now this was exactly what this counterculture to that of our biblical foundation was looking for. Todd Kappelman, a, a writer for Probe Ministry, says this, The book was quickly embraced as a powerful gun in the armory of growing liberalism, promoting science over theology. Darwinism soon came to stand for an entire range of evolutionary philosophies about both biology and what? Society. Not only it was how did we get here, but it was also the evolution of thought, the evolution of values. He goes on to say, the Christian church was not ready for the Darwinian revolution. Therefore, this philosophy was able to gain a foothold and later a death grip on every aspect of modern life in both academic and popular circles. What he says is that the church wasn't ready for this. See, the church responded to Darwin by banging on the pulpit and declaring the inspiration of the word of God. And they thought if they just banged harder on the pulpit and yelled and screamed harder from, from, from the pulpit that people would just forget this Darwinian nonsense and come back to the roots. But it didn't happen that way. And this move from theology to science, from biblical values to worldly values, began to grow and grow and grow. The ultimate result, Kappelman says, is the result is that most of our public schools and universities and even our political lives are dominated by the assumption that Darwinian evolution is scientifically true and that creationism is fictitious. And that's where we're living today, isn't it? Even though it is still and has never changed from being the theory of evolution, it is now presented to people and we are politically and socially pushed to believe that it is fact and that creationism is absolutely false. Now, modernism became this. Human reason, armed with the scientific method, is the only reliable means of attaining knowledge about life in the universe. We went from the biblical account of creation and everything God said about it to the fact that, no, it is scientific method. It's all about science. Only science can give us an accurate explanation for life and for creation and for the formation of the universe and life and everything else. Robert Ingelsoll, one of the early proponents of modernism, said it this way, and this sums up this era. Our ignorance is God. What we know is science. Our ignorance is God. What we really know comes from science. All this gave rise to the focal point and the focal philosophy of this era, of this time, of this period, and that is secularism. Now, what's secularism? The Catholic Encyclopedia has a great definition. It says this, In his whole conduct, man should be guided exclusively by considerations derived from the present life itself. Anything that is above or beyond the present life should be entirely overlooked. 
In other words, the only way that we can have any knowledge is what we're experiencing right now. The only truth is what we experience. Forget about what's been done in the past. Forget about what anybody has said in the past, which specifically includes the Bible and any idea of divine revelation. Just forget it. Goes on to say, whether God exists or not, whether the soul is immortal or not, are questions which at best cannot be answered and on which consequently no motives or actions can be based. All motives derived from the Christian religion are worthless. That's secularism. Forget it, you Christians. Forget anything that comes from that Christianity. All of those ideas, all those values, all those explanations about life, all of that is worthless. Now, the church got upset about that and finally kicked in. And so the church began to muster forces and began a counter-revolution against this modern, secular revolution that was going on in culture. And the church began to rally people because most people still did believe that there was a God, as is today. 98% of people in recent polls say they believe in God. Now, what they believe about God is very different than it was in the pre-modern period. Don't kid yourself about that. But the same thing, so the church really got aggressive and the church started gaining ground against secularism. And so how the secularists responded to that aggression by the church and by that initial success of the church was to create a new weapon, and that weapon was the separation of church and state. They started to decry that from the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution says that church and state should remain separate. They should not be integrated in culture or society or politics. James Hunter, who wrote a book called uh, Culture Wars, said secularism became the right to freedom from religious rules and teaching. You have a right not to be bothered with that stuff. You have a right to be free from that oppression of theology and from churches. Robert Ingersoll, again, sums up this period when he writes this. Secularism is the religion of humanity. It embraces the affairs of this world. It is interested in everything that touches the welfare of a sentient being. It means that each individual counts for something. It is a declaration of intellectual independence. It means that the pew is superior to the pulpit. It is a protest against theological oppression, against ecclesiastical tyranny. It is a protest of wasting this life for the sake of one that we know not of. In other words, where it evolved is saying this, that you who are sitting out there in the pew know more about life than the guy up here preaching. You know more about life than God's word could ever explain to you. Get rid of all that old ancient myth. Get rid of all those religious superstitions because life is what it is as you experience it. After World War II, secularism just took off in America. Several reasons. Number one is the massive carnage of that terrible war. In Europe alone, over 50 million people lost their lives. And people began to say, how could there be a God who would allow such a horrible, horrible thing? And his chosen people. Five to six million of them murdered in concentration camps by the Nazis. If there's a God, why would he ever allow that to happen? And so people began more and more to move away from God and embrace secularism. Also, 
at the end of World War II, the United States government was faced with a real pending problem, a problem that manifested itself at the end of World War I, and that was that returning veterans by the thousands after this war suddenly ends, flooding the employment market where there's no jobs. Because during the war, when all these young men were off fighting the war, women had to move into the workplace in order to work the jobs in the factories and all that other kind of thing. And when many of the men came back, the women were used to that culture and they didn't want to leave. And there were no jobs. At the end of World War I, the same thing happened, and it resulted in riots by veterans storming Washington, D.C. General Pershing had to come in and, and, and quash it, and MacArthur and all these guys to quash those riots after the war. And so what happened is the government came up with the GI Bill of Rights. And under the GI Bill of Rights, all returning veterans who desired were entitled to a college education paid for by the government. Now, when they came back, many, thousands, took advantage of that because before World War II, college was for the rich people. Your common industrial middle class person, you couldn't go to college, you couldn't afford college. And now college was afforded, and the government was going to pay for it. And so men by the thousands went back into education and went back to universities and colleges of higher learning. The problem was, by that time, those institutions had been taken over by secularists. They were the teachers. They were the presidents. They were the ones administrating. They were the one who was teaching what they were learning. And so they were flooded with this secular mentality, further driving them away from confidence in the Bible and, and God. The Vietnam War fed this tendency even more. I grew up, I was a teenager during the Vietnam War. And I remember the social unrest in the United States of America. Everything was like turning upside down. It was crazy. People were protesting this and protesting that. And, 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 the, and the, the catchphrase was anti-establishment. Anything that's traditional, reject it, resist it, make war against it, which included traditional faith and church and biblical values. Also, veterans coming back from Vietnam who had been introduced to Eastern religions came back and they began introducing that into society, giving it some credibility. And, and so we became this hodgepodge, this smorgasbord of philosophical and religious thought. And it was just fertile ground for secularism to rise and to grow and grow and grow. James Hunter again says, Secularism grew extremely powerful, especially the social buy-in to the separation of church and state. Religion lost its foothold in American culture. And you say, well, I don't know about that. Oh, really? When I went to school, every morning the teacher opened the Bible and read a verse from the Bible. When I went to school, every morning in the public school system, the teacher prayed over that day's education. Today, the Bible's out of the schools. Today, prayer is out of the schools. Today, religious symbols are no longer tolerated in front of municipal buildings. Today, we want to get rid of it all. America lost its religious foothold. And secularism won and pushed all of that out of culture and out of society. But the worst was yet to come. The modern period was followed by the period that we're living in today. 
and that's the postmodern period. It began in the late 1900s, and it is thriving now and growing. It's still in its infancy, mind you, into the 21st century. Now, postmodernism came about because as more and more people went to these institutions of higher learning, they became more enlightened, more informed, better educated, and they began to reject modernism because they felt that the modernists had grossly miscalculated and grossly uh, had a lack of understanding in some critical areas. And the critical area was they saw that their predecessor's error was assuming that there is any such thing as objective truth. There's no truth. And so modernism took it a step farther and said, not only is there no objective truth, there's no absolute truth. There is no absolute standard by which you should judge what is right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. There's no absolute truth. Postmodernism appeals more to a person's feelings than to his or her sense of factual truth. How do I feel about life? How do I feel about that alternative lifestyle? How do I feel about it for me? How do I feel about it? How do I feel? How do I feel? How do I feel? How do, what do I think about it? Rather than what is factual about it. Now, how does that interact with us today? How is postmodernism changing Christianity yet again? Kappelman, again from Probe Ministry, says Christians are free to believe that Christ is God if they like. But their claims cannot exclude other persons' belief. Truth may be true for one person and false for another. Postmodernism. To us today, says that you, you guys, you Christians, you want to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? That's fine. That's, you, you go ahead and believe it. That's fine. But that doesn't mean you're right. In fact, you're no more right than the person over here who believes in Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam. Because there is no absolute truth. So all of these religious things, they're just man-made Things are, and all of it's designed just to provide you some sense of security in some area of your life, and it's all really false. There's no absolute truth. Goes on to say, furthermore, Christians are expected to tolerate contradicting claims of truth and to look the other way if certain behaviors, lifestyles do not suit their tastes. Now, it's not just enough that, you know, Christians, okay, if you want to believe in Jesus Christ, go ahead. But you don't have the right. How dare you challenge anybody else's belief? How dare you speak of anyone else's lifestyle in a condescending or judgmental way? The weapons of postmodernism so far are pluralism. There's many philosophies of life. There's many philosophies of religion. There's many philosophies of values. And they're all equally as valid. Because there's no absolute truth. So it's whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to embrace. It's up to you. Now, there is tremendous cultural and social pressure upon those who still want to maintain the biblical authority of morals and the biblical authority of values in life. 
And so they have come up with the weapon of tolerance. And that weapon says that if you do not equate anyone else's opinions and perspectives and lifestyles, if you do not accept them as equal, you're a bigot. You're, you're, you're a hateful person. You're the scourge of culture. You're the scourge of society. You must accept their perspective of life. You must embrace their ideas of how they want to live their life. And we've come up with a whole new language to ensure that it happens. It's called political correctness. And we are even and have designed judicial uh, legislation that makes it illegal to speak against somebody else's life perspective. They're called hate crimes. All of this forms to present as the focal point of this particular cultural view as an absolute right of entitlement. You're entitled to live life any way you want to live it. You guys are married right here. You're entitled to do that. You're entitled to be a heterosexual couple. But, but you, you, you guys over here, you're same gender, and, and, and that's fine. You're, you're entitled to do that. Who am I to tell you anything? I mean, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for him is good for him. What's good for her is good for her. There is no absolute truth. So there's no problem with the way you want to live your life. And there's no end to where that can go, by the way. In the late 1900s, the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, put out, I think it was in a seminar at one of their their workshops, testing the waters out the basis that they concluded that consensual sex between an adult and an older child is not necessarily damaging to that child's emotional state of being. Now, Dr. Dobson focused on the family and groups like that jumped all over it. and, And they retracted it. It didn't go anywhere. But that's the idea. No absolute truth. Now, this dynamic cultural shift has given birth to two opposing forces. And and this is accepted on all sides of the equation. In my over 100 hours of research in in preparing for this particular uh, message series, uh, I read books on both sides of the perspective. And both sides agree to this, that there's basically, there's formed two different groups. And that's where all the tension is in our culture today. One group they're calling orthodox. And that group is described like this. They hold that mankind is obligated to embrace the revealed truth of God and live life according to its divine revelation, embrace it as the only source of moral authority. That's one group. That's they're calling the orthodox. The other group they're calling the progressives. And the progressives reject any idea of divine moral truth or authority and declare that every person has the right to live life according to their own personal life, experience, needs, and choices. That's the two competing worldviews. James Hunter, again in his book on, on Culture Wars, says the division of political consequence today are the result of differing worldviews. And understand this. Those who embrace the progressive worldview do it very sincerely. And they truly believe that that will make a better America. That will make a better culture. That will make a better society. And they are just as passionate about that as Orthodox are, that our only hope 
is to return to our absolute confidence in the Bible and God's word as the only source of moral authority. Hunter goes on to say, because this is a cultural war, the nub of the social disagreement today on the range of issues debated, whether abortion, child care, funding for the arts, affirmative action and quotas, gay rights, values in public education, or multiculturalism, can be traced ultimately and finally to the matter of what? Moral authority. Everybody agrees on both sides. That's the issue. By what do we determine individually and culturally what is right and what is wrong? What is good? What is evil? Moral authority. For Orthodox, it's God. It's God's revealed word. For progressive, it's whatever your life choice is. Now, with those two diametrically opposing worldviews, how can we not expect daily collisions in every area of our life? Because those philosophies enter into every area of our lives. Let me tell you, the orthodox side isn't winning. A recent CNN living post said this, America is less a Christian nation than it was 20 years ago, according to the latest censuses. And Christianity is not losing out to other religions but primarily to a rejection of religion altogether. goes on to say, William Donahue, president of the Catholic League, said he thinks a radical shift towards individualism over the last quarter century has a lot to do with it. You think? Quoting him, the three most dreaded words are thou shalt not, he told Lou Dobbs. He goes on to say, notice they, aren't, they are not atheists. They are saying, I don't want to be told what to do with my life. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. You don't have any place in telling me how I ought to live. I don't care what your perspectives are. What's true for you is not true for me. And there is no absolute truth. So you accept me and I'll accept you and we'll go our ways. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great multitude of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. That's exactly what we are colliding with every single day. Now, who made this mess? Who's responsible for this? Well, in my opinion, all of us. We're all responsible. The church is responsible because when people did embrace the church as the true source and as the true moral compass, the church often abused it. And we became legalistic, and we wanted to squeeze people into these little denominational boxes. And you shall not do this and you shall not do that. When Jesus came said, it is for freedom that I have set you free. Amen. Mankind is, is guilty because from the Garden of Eden, we've always resisted God's control of our life. God, one tree, garden, 
Everything else you can have. One tree. Don't eat that tree. Where do we go? That tree. See, it's just in our sinful nature now that we want, we want to do it our way. We want to live life the way we want to live it. We don't want anybody telling us how to do it differently. Paul goes on, 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, he says, But you, keep your heads in all situation, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge the duty of all your ministries. Now, specifically in the context of the passage, he's speaking specifically to Timothy, who is one of his preacher apprentices. But the same is true for anyone who embraces biblical Christianity today. The same is true. This is our guide. This is our mandate. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. It's going to get hard. It is hard. And I promise you, it's going to get harder. Do the work of an evangelist. What's that work? Tell people that God loves them. Never stop telling them that God loves them. And God sent Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And that God will forgive their sins. And God is a moral compass. And his moral compass is accurate. It always points north. And you can rely on it. If you live your life by it, you're not going to live in shame. You're not going to live with guilt. Do the duties of your ministry. Be active. How many ever saw the movie The Truman Show? A lot of you didn't. The Truman Show... It's all about a man played by Jim Carrey named Truman Burbank. And Truman Burbank thinks he's living the perfect life. He's got a wonderful job, beautiful family. Every day when he leaves the house to go to work, his neighbors are in their front yard and they wait, Truman, how are you? Have a good day. Hey, have a good day. Every day when he comes home, the neighbors are in the front yard again. Hey, Truman, how was your day? Oh, my day was great. Everywhere, all of life, life is just sweet and everything is going great and, and he's got a perfect life. Only his entire life is a lie. Because in actuality, from the moment he was born, Truman Burbank became the focal point of the world's most popular reality show. And in actuality, everything about his life is scripted. Even his parents are actors. His neighbors are actors. The people at work are actors. The kids he went to school with are actors. Everybody in the history of his life are actors, and they have been responding to this this reality show that's on 24 hours a day focused on the life of Truman Burbank as people watched his every action even as he slept at night. And what the movie is about is his journey to self-discovery to find out that he's not really living his life. He's not really making his choices. He's not really the master of his destiny. In fact, other forces are controlling Everything about his life. Now I'm here to tell you today that to one degree or another, every one of us here are living the Truman Show. Every one of us are Truman Burbanks. We think that we're living our life just the way we want to live it. We think we're making choices that are birthed out of our own selves, when in reality, 
We are being manipulated by aggressive cultural forces and agents of revolution. What this series is going to be about is how that culture, that postmodernism, is invading our choices, our values, in every area of our life every day. And it's going to get messy because we're going to have some self-discovery. And as we start turning some rocks over and opening some doors, we are going to be amazed at how much influence in our lives culture really has and how much we are playing the role of Truman Burbank. The end is this. The end is not to intimidate anybody. The end is not to alienate anybody. The end result of this series is to do this. It's to bring enlightenment, to take the scales off our eyes and allow us to see the influence and then each one of us will have the freedom that God gives us to make a decision on which philosophy we want to embrace and we think is better for us. And and you're free to make that decision. God has made you free to make that decision. Next week, we talk about when culture influences marriage. The next week, when culture collides with singleness, many in our church family are single people. The next week, when culture collides with family. We're going to talk about culture colliding with values and culture colliding with entertainment and culture colliding with health. We're going to talk about so many things. And what we want to do is we want to give you the opportunity to understand what's really happening behind the scenes so that you are empowered to make good life choices. And I hope you'll bring a lot of people. And whether next week, whether you're married or single, I hope you'll come because it's going to be relative to you. And the next week, we're talking to singles primarily. I hope you're married. You come because you know a lot of single people. And it's going to be relative for everyone. Now, we're going to close our service today with taking communion. And as we celebrate it, let us use it to remind ourselves that there is absolute truth. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, Jesus answering a question said, I am the way and the truth and the life. You want to really know? You want a moral compass? You want to know how to make good decisions in your life? You want to know how to protect your marriage? You want to know how to raise your children? You want to know how to leave this life and have eternal life with God? I'm the way. I came to reveal that. I'm the truth. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, what we have to decide individually is whether Jesus is being arrogant or he's being honest. Is he being arrogant and saying, the only way, you're the only way, really? Doesn't fit with the postmodern culture, does it? Or whether it's true. And 
the decision we make about that literally impacts our eternal existence. How do we know it's true? Because Jesus proved it. Jesus willingly went to the cross and died for us. He said, this is how serious I am. I am so serious that I am going to give my body up for you. I'm going to let them do whatever they want to do to me. Jesus said in the garden experience, he said, don't you think that presently I couldn't call to my father and he'd said 12 legions of angels to save me? But he went to the cross willingly, sacrificially, so that we could have forgiveness of our sins. You're here today, and you're in collusion with a culture that wants you to believe that everything the Bible says about the forgiveness of sin is a waste of your time and is nonsense. God's word cries out to you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Maybe you're here today and you're still wrestling with that. Maybe you're here today and you're just beginning a journey looking into the whole idea of faith and God and the Bible and Christianity in this case. And Let me first congratulate you for that bold quest, for that bold journey, for being willing to get out there on the edge and, and consider it. But right now, some of you have been considering it a while. Right now, the Spirit of God, not my words, there's nothing to my words, I'm, they're just words, I'm just a guy. But the Spirit of God is bearing witness with your conscience right now. And he's saying to you, what this man is saying is true about me. And you need this. You need this forgiveness. You need to enter into an eternal relationship with me. No other way. I don't care how many religions there are, they're not all going to the same place. There's one. Jesus said, I'm it. And right now, God's Spirit is bearing witness with you that that's true. Then the reason that he's bearing witness with you right now is because he wants to give you that gift. And that's, it's exactly that. It's a gift. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't win it. All you can do is ask for it. And everyone who asks for it, God gives it to them. The Bible says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I write unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Listen to me. God loves you so much that he went to the cross for you. 
And he wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you forgiveness. And all you have to do is ask. If right now God's speaking to your conscience, would you, would you respond to him right now? The book of Hebrews today says, Today, if you hear his voice, today is the day of salvation. Just pray, God, I do hear your voice. God, I need this forgiveness. And so as best as I understand it, God, I'm doing it the way you have revealed it to be done. I'm asking for the gift of forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, I believe that Jesus is the only way. I believe that he died on the cross, was buried, and I believe that you empowered him to rise from the grave. And that because Jesus was the only sacrifice that was worthy for the forgiveness of sin, and that Jesus was the only sacrifice willing to die for sin, that you have given him alone the authority to forgive sin. And so, Jesus, right now, I'm asking you to forgive my sin, pay my sin debt with your blood. Today, I believe on the name of the Son of God for eternal life. And for any man, any woman who will do that, God says, I will give you forgiveness. Here's how much God loves you. Friend, tonight Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, Jesus took the cup and he Passed it to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you. Thank you for being our moral compass. Thank you for revealing what is true. Thank you for giving us something that we can live our lives by with confidence and promise and assurance. God, thank you that you haven't abandoned us to ourselves and the opinions of others. God, may we now embrace your revealed word and may we return to it as our only source of life, guidance, and of moral authority. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you'll come back for every week of this series. It's going to get messy. Get ready. It is. It's going to get messy. But you're an intelligent adult. And you need accurate information to make intelligent decisions. Come back and you decide. It's your choice. But at least come back and hear it and bring somebody with you.